Dus uh, als we dit in het Nederlands willen opnemen, dan kan, dan kan dat ook gewoon? Dat kan ook. Ja. Want gesproken Nederlands is niet heel goed. Ik kan het goed lezen en goed vertalen, maar ik, ik spreek het niet zo vaak. <laughs> <laughs> This is Localization Today, a podcast from Multilingual Media. Every week we look back on the news from multilingual.com with a language industry specialist. What stood out? What are notable trends? How can we predict what is going to happen next? I am your host, Marjolein Groot-Nibbelink, publisher of Multilingual Magazine. Jeffrey Kobe is a freelance professional translator, professor of translation studies and German at Kent State University, and also serves as president at the American Foundation for Translation and Interpretation. From 28 to 2020, he served in different roles, including as a member of the board of directors, for the American Translators Association. I was able to take Dutch uh, in graduate school as my research language rather than French, which for me, as a, I, I was originally trained in Germanic linguistics. And so um, I was interested in studying the Germanic languages. Mm -hmm. And that led to me studying Middle Dutch. And then Middle Dutch led to Modern Dutch. And yeah. having already had German, I could... Uh, easily add Dutch as a as a second foreign language, and I love it. It's a lot of fun. Thank you for being here. Oh, I'm I'm happy to help out. I'm glad to be meeting with you. Yeah, the the reason you're on the show today is that the American Translators Association, the ATA, has released the sixth edition of the ATA Compensation Survey revealing in-depth data on income and pay rates in the language services industry. The report created from the survey represents the most complete, accurate, and up-to-date income and pay rate data on the translation and interpreting professions, the ATA writes. The results are invaluable in managing a TNI business and planning for the future. What was your role in creating this report? Well, actually, my role started with creating the questionnaire. We uh, had a committee. We've we've been developing this survey, of course, over the years. And uh, mm -hmm. I was involved in developing the questionnaire for the fifth edition and then also chaired the committee that created the questionnaire for the sixth edition, which yeah. addressed some of the shortcomings. And so um, I was involved in developing the questionnaire to really ask the right questions and then because of antitrust rules, ATA itself mm -hmm. doesn't conduct the survey. Uh, we have to have a firewall uh, between us and the data so that it doesn't look like we're recommending rates or something. This is simply a survey of, of what yeah. um, we're seeing out in the world. And then there's the survey itself was drafted mostly by uh, Ted Wozniak, and I was one of the proofreaders and reviewers of the survey. I see. And how did the questions change or how did the survey tone change in the fifth and sixth edition that, that you worked on compared to the ones that came before? Um, it, I would say the it's been a, an expansion of the data and a more accurate asking of the right questions. So for one thing, in the previous editions, uh, we really didn't address interpreting at all because mm. uh, we didn't have a significant proportion of interpreters until the last couple of decades when uh, we've become 
more diverse in our in our membership. So the fifth edition then started to survey the interpreters as well. And we realized that um, if a translator writes a survey for an interpreter, we're asking the wrong questions. So yeah. uh, we got a lot of um, <laughs> feedback after the fifth edition saying, I don't know how to answer this question. It's not asked in the right way. So yeah. in response to that, I asked the ATA board to allow us to create a committee and we brought in translators uh, and interpreters from a variety of languages so that we could ask questions that about rates, for instance, you know, a translator doesn't know how an interpreter charges, whether it's by the day or by the minute and so forth. Mm -hmm. The same way that different languages also, some language traditions charge by the word, some language traditions charge by the page or by the line. And so having a diverse group um, build that survey meant that we could ask the right questions and get some um, accurate data. Yeah. And that makes me think, are all the respondents based in the U.S.? Um, no, uh, most of them are. But we invited, certainly all ATA members were invited. Uh, we did open the survey also to non-ATA members, but that's a much smaller number of respondents. Um, but ATA members are, you know, by and large in the United States. And most of our income questions were focused on U.S. income. But we did have a few, you know, we have a, a small percentage of ATA members also outside of the U.S. Do you think that may have had an impact on the results, meaning that people in different economies often charge different rates based on the economy that they live in? I think that that effect is probably very small, uh, simply mm -hmm. because the vast majority of respondents are in the U.S. and so. The yes, probably to some extent, but since mm -hmm. the vast majority are responding from the U.S., they're going to be charging rates in U.S. dollars. Got it. Uh, there is, in general, a growing concern about fair pay in the language industry, but when I look at the results of this report, it doesn't seem to be an issue among the respondents here. Am I right, or am I misinterpreting the value of the service? Well, um, I think we should say that the survey is a snapshot of um, you know 700, 739 respondents, uh, mm -hmm. which is uh, a good response. But of course, it's not the 9,000 members of the ATA, and it's certainly not the estimated 50,000 plus translators and interpreters in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. We can also maybe think that um, ATA members uh, may be more aware of the pricing issues, possibly more advanced in the profession. Uh, it's really hard to say what that that hidden figure is of perhaps underpaid interpreters um, who may be unaware of our rate survey, for instance. I mean, we we would hope that this information would get out to the larger TNI industry. But I think there are a lot of um, yeah. interpreters and translators out there who are not connected to a professional association. And they may be the ones who are more likely to be, to not have the leverage to really negotiate uh, prices in a fair way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'd be good for the listeners to share that, according to the results here, staff interpreters and translators are earning an average of 71000 uh, and and sixty thousand uh, annually, respectively, from language services alone. So, you know, to me, thinking of median income in the U.S., that's not bad. 
Right. Um, we see that, I mean, in all of the different categories. Uh, I think the most important takeaway here is that mean income or for all respondents was $50,000, $53,000. The number of respondents is, I think, a, uh, an important variable here because the vast majority of, of respondents were freelance translators and freelance interpreters for whom the the numbers also look very good. Yeah. Well, that's that's really positive. At the same time, I've been reading more and more uh, criticism, and I've even received letters of crit criticism when we profile people in Multilingual Magazine who offer rates as low as $0.017 per word. So, you know, less than less than two cents a word. Uh, how much of an issue is this considering foreign markets will work for different rates? Uh, and, and this is a question not just for the U.S. markets, obviously, but as a global issue. That's a very difficult question uh, yeah. to really get a handle on because we we surveyed uh, translators and interpreters who are working in the United States mostly. Yeah. I mean, by and large, the vast majority of respondents are are in the U.S. and uh, the rest, you know, most of the other ATA members will probably be in Europe or in South America. So, of course, there are different economies with different prices and so forth. Um, yeah. I think the argument to be made there is one of professionalism and perhaps of perceived or real quality that mm -hmm. um, the low end numbers are really, you have to ask yourself, how is anyone making a living that way? Um, and on the other hand, you have to ask yourself if someone is in of a low wage country, of course they can charge whatever they can charge. The, we're yeah. certainly not going to be trying to restrain trade or anything. We're just trying to give our members and the industry a picture of what's happening in the US. Uh, yeah. Each translator and interpreter has to deal with the rates in their local market. And there actually, it's an interesting point. The interpreters are on the ground. Uh, <laughs> We're not going to get a lot of right. low-wage interpreting from from far abroad because that's impractical. For translators, it's a different issue. Interestingly, I think in the language industry, we really have to say there isn't just one set of rate pressures. The, the mm -hmm. sets of rate pressures depend on the language pair. As our survey shows, the vast, the vast majority, the largest number of translators and interpreters are working in the Spanish-English language pair. And they mm -hmm. have one set of price issues and people working in German English or Italian English or Japanese or Chinese English have a completely different set of, of rate pressures. Yeah. And this is a inherently global business, the business of translation and language services. Um, I've always wondered and never completely been able to understand how, how does someone compete who is in the U.S. offering English to Thai translations with someone based in Thailand offering the same thing at a fraction of the rate when it's not just about quality? Right. We don't. We we there is no question that that's a a big issue. No one can compete on rates between economies with vastly different parameters. Um, yeah. I think some of the answer is that 
we 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 have to ask, you know, what do, what's the language direction? You know, English into Thai. You would assume that a Thailand-based English into Thai uh, translator would be, you know, integrated into the language and certainly capable. Um, but sometimes clients want to work with someone local. It really depends mm-hmm. on the situation. And are we talking about direct clients? Are we talking about working through a translation agency? And yes, is price the only issue? For instance, if you're going English into Thai and you've got a Thai-based uh, translator, it depends also on the familiarity of that translator with, say, U.S. culture. Um, if they were, if they learned English in the U.K., for instance, and we have a highly mm-hmm. culturally bound text in the U.S., you know, there are advantages to U.S.-based and Thailand-based translators, or you know, foreign-based translators, depending on the need for handholding for with the client mm-hmm. uh, for uh, responsiveness time zones may play a, a, a role I don't think it's yeah. a there's an any easy answer what is the ATA doing on behalf of its own members and also the larger language community to promote fair pay actually I don't think we can say that the ATA's role is to do that um, mm-hmm. the ATA is a professional organization and the ATA is providing a service to the industry by providing rates. But there's also a little bit of history here that um, goes back decades to a Federal Trade Commission investigation of the ATA uh, for uh, the appearance of setting rates or um, price fixing. So ATA is very cautious uh, to... Right. That's that's why we started doing uh, rate surveys, actually, the very first edition. Oh. There's a lot of this goes back, like I said, quite a bit. Um, but there was indeed uh, this investigation that led ATA to say, OK, we are going to do the survey. We are going to provide the uh, rate and income information to our members and to the general public. Uh, but we are not, as an ATA, going to say you, know, you should charge this. We, we can't do that. Right. That's that's completely right. illegal. Um, that said, we're more likely to be, uh, we do have um, advocacy committees in the ATA um, that are concerned about working conditions uh, and employment for, for our members, obviously. Uh, the most recent one was um, the, the issue around AB5 in California, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, Can fill fill that, me in and and the readers. I mean, and the sure. listeners. So sure, sure. AB five uh, was a California bill that actually became law that um, was really intended to address perceived abuses in the gig economy uh, for things like um, ride sharing services, and that people were essentially working full time for one of the ride sharing services, but they were being considered gig workers and not getting benefits and so forth. That was the that was the focus of it. Uh, it inadvertently caught translators and interpreters in its web, um, and it's it seemed to imply that um, any translator or interpreter working for a translation or interpreting agency in California would then suddenly be classified as an employee. Um, and you know that would be unworkable for the business model for um, agency owners because obviously somebody who works in um, 
in a small language and does three or four little jobs a year can't really be the the cost would be enormous. So yeah. our we had an advocacy group advocacy group that came together in California, a committee of ATA members and and others in the state uh, to lobby for an exemption for translators and interpreters. And ATA was very strongly supporting that so that uh, we wouldn't have this problem of the an industry where many, if not most, translators and many interpreters are happy being independent contractors and want to remain independent contractors. Not to mm-hmm. say that there aren't also members who like to be employees, um, but we needed to uh, advocate for our members so that it's not that the business model that makes it possible for translators and interpreters to be happily independent and working for multiple employers uh, is then, you know, obviated by uh, a different law. So we do advocate for for our members that way. That's great to hear. And I do remember that story. I saw that 89% of the surveys respondents were ATA members. Like you said, most of them were, uh, but, you know, there are some non-members. Could this indicate that the results of the survey are somewhat skewed towards professionals who are able to afford an ATA membership and maybe meaning that they are in a different stage of their professional career? Yes and no. Uh, I think it's also fair to say that uh, from a response point of view, the respondents tended to be somewhat older, uh, yeah. if you look at that that breakdown. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it it's sometimes that about are, about fifty percent or over forty, I think. Right, right. So they're definitely well established in the in their careers um, if they choose to respond. The interesting thing is we do get a fairly large number of new members every year who are young and entering the profession, and so ATA often is a a gateway to um, more professionalism and so forth. But I'm. But we don't really have any good way of breaking that down and saying who's responding, who's not. However, yes, I would agree with you to some extent that this is skewed in the sense that we are surveying professionals who do belong to a professional organization and who therefore have invested in those dues and uh, have a vest uh, have an investment in in the in the field and thus also want to supply the data that gives us good information. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas it's very, very difficult to reach those translators and interpreters who are not members. No matter how well you, yeah. you publicize it, it's always going to be this uh, minority uh, response rate from non-members. Yeah, yeah, got it. And and you know, I I only read the summary as I think a lot of people did. What value is there mm-hmm. in downloading the entire report? Oh, so you don't you don't actually have the report? Nope. Okay, so you're looking at it on the web here. The, I think the the main takeaway, really, for someone who would like to buy the uh, the ATA the full ATA survey and read it, is that the summary has uh, a general overview of income, but it doesn't include rates. And the one thing that we know from our members that they really, really want to see is what are people actually charging in my language pair. So I the see. full survey has several pages that are uh, telling you exactly uh, what people are charging in a given language pair and direction. Um, 
or what interpreters are charging. And it also breaks things down into things like, are you charging by the page, the word, um, yeah. are interpreters charging by the minute or by the hour? Um, all of that detailed information is there, but I think the real, uh, the really most attractive thing, certainly for my students, I, I'm a professor at uh, Kent State University. I train translators. And the one main question that they're all, uh, all my students are coming to ask me is, how much should I charge when I start in the industry? Yeah. Yeah. What would you say uh -huh. to someone in the U.S. who's thinking of entering the language industry today? I would say consider carefully whether you have the requirements. What do you need to be a translator successfully? Reading proficiency in the source language, writing proficiency in the target language, um, some business skills, a willingness to take a risk of being an entrepreneur. Uh, that said, it's also probably useful to consider what language pair you're working in and explore the opportunities in that language pair. My own experience is that it doesn't really matter what language pair you're working in. If you have good qualifications, the volume of translation is increasing. And despite machine translation, which is also addressed mm -hmm. in our report, um, and many people do work with machine translation and post-editing, which is a growing uh, area of endeavor as well. There are opportunities for translators. I train translators myself at the university, and um, I see them going out and getting employed in the field. There are opportunities out there, and it's, it's a, a career worth doing, but it's also a very um, sophisticated professional career, and it requires people to have a little bit more sophistication in terms of high levels of language skill um, and a knowledge of a specialty area uh, such as law or finance or technology and a willingness to yeah. learn. And yeah. if I may put in a yeah. shameless plug, uh, the ATA's um, mm -hmm. conference is a great place to do that learning. Yes. I'm talking with Jeff Kobe, and we'll be right back after the break. It's time to reconnect at GALA's annual conference. Join GALA members and other industry professionals from around the globe in San Diego or online from April 24 to 27. Listeners of Localization Today get $100 off in-person registration and $25 off virtual registration by going to gala-global.org forward slash LTY. That's gala-global.org slash LTY. Gala Global. Expand your mind and your network. Offer expires April 18th. Welcome back to my conversation with Jeff Kobe. What does the future hold for freelance translators? Now, let me, let me solidify it a little bit. The next 20 years. What does the next 20 years hold for freelance translators? Well, uh, it's. I think that the 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 world of the freelance translator will gradually evolve. Machine translation has been rising for some de couple of decades now, uh, and it is increasingly high quality. And the challenge is really that that high quality hides something that has been an issue since the 1960s when machine translation was first started at a very primitive stage. Um, and at that time, 
one of the researchers came up with something called the poison cookie analogy. What hmm. machine translation produces is uh, it looks perfect. It looks really good. And nowadays yeah. it reads really well. But the client is unable to determine whether or not that text is actually accurate. It's as if I give you 100 perfectly baked cookies and say 99 of them are not poisoned. Mm -hmm. You can't tell which one is the problem. And that's the role that increasingly freelance translators will play. Freelance translators have opportunities in high-risk areas, such as medical devices, mm -hmm. um, in cutting-edge areas where you know, machine translation is only based on existing translations. And so it doesn't do mm -hmm. well with ambiguities. It doesn't do well with highly technical. It does do well with terminology, but it doesn't do well with um, highly complex explanations and new, new ideas that haven't really been explored yet. Um, and the other area, of course, for freelance translators is that uh, we have to be the check and balance on the output of machine translation that looks good but isn't really. As a matter of fact, the, um, the translation agency of the European Union in Brussels uh, did a report on machine translation, and their conclusion was that if you really want quality, you really can't depend on machine translation. You need a human. So I think there are opportunities there. So I guess we can close this off by saying uh, the existing translators and future translators Prepare yourself for rate negotiations and focus on an industry specialty. I would think that's a fair thing to say, yes. Yeah, yeah. Really appreciated you being able to jump on kind of last minute. So, Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. That was Jeffrey Kobe talking about the sixth edition of the ATA Compensation Survey. Thank you for listening to Localization Today. To subscribe to Multilingual Magazine, go to multilingual.com slash subscribe.